we are we are in John. This is really really exciting for me. Um, previously, previously in John, um, we we've had the prophecy that the, this this figure, the Word, created the world and then has even entered into it. And then this this herald has come and announced, "Hey, hey, he's here. He's going to be the Lamb of God. Sins are going to be forgiven." And, and so what we're seeing is all these. And in fact, some people have even believed him and realized this this guy could be the King of everything. And and so these different people are seeing these different things about Jesus, and we've started to see these different. Oh, that's that prophecy coming true. That's that prophecy coming true, and they are telling their stories. That's what all this is about. And now we get to a new story, a new bunch of people who are watching, and we're going to hear more about what is it that this word who's actually entered into the world, the one who made it, who's come into it, what are they like and what's happening? So we're at a wedding. Uh, and again, notice, notice the, the time stuff in John. Feel free to have your Bible open. This is, this is one of those really cool little passages where you'll pick up lots of fun stuff in, in it. Um, Notice again, on the third day, um, again, John is like, he's on the money in the time stakes. He is, he is very definite with what happened when. And we find out there's this wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, we're not exactly sure of the geography of the Bethany that was mentioned before. So there's a few different Bethanies, but it's probably at least a couple of days journey. Uh, and Jesus' mum's already there. But then we find out that Jesus is invited too, and his disciples I don't know. I haven't been able to work out and find out if this is normal practice. If you invite a teacher, he's supposed to bring along his disciples as well. But in any case, they're invited too. Now, the funny thing about this wedding is, is that the wedding itself is not really the focus. Have you noticed that? Like we don't really know anything about the wedding. We don't know who was getting married. We don't know whether they even got married. We don't know if the bridesmaids' dresses had ruffles. Like, you know, all the important details that you want to know about a wedding. We don't know anything. What do we know? How much booze is left, right? That's what we know. We don't know what they ate. We don't know if the best man made inappropriate jokes in his speech. I'm pretty sure he did. Um, we, we're at a wedding feast in first century Galilee, and these things go for days. These could last up to a week, and that, they don't mess around with their parties, right? And we're not even sure what day of the party we're up to. It might be three days into the drinking for all we know, but what we know is we know about the wine situation. That's what John says matters here. Now, it's probably not because John's a raging alcoholic. It's probably not because, you know, getting sloshed is his objective. It's more likely because this would have been seriously embarrassing to the groom. This would have been a big deal. And it becomes obvious when the story unfolds, the wine is the groom's responsibility. In fact, most likely, the whole feast is the groom's responsibility. And being unable to provide enough wine for the duration of the feast, that would have been significant social humiliation. But that is exactly what is on the cards here? So when Jesus' mother comes to him saying, hey, they've got no more wine, Jesus knows exactly what she means. We've got a situation here, Jesus. Not providing for the wedding, that's like turning up to the wedding naked. This is proper humiliation for the groom. But it's funny, it's not just that it would be embarrassing, I don't think. Don't you think it would just be wrong if the wine ran out? Like, it's a celebration. It's not fitting for the occasion. This is the formation of a new family, the un union of two people before God who, who, like, they're starting a whole new thing together. It's beautiful. There's got to be wine. It's actually, like, like a wedding with no wine is like a, a pub with no beer. In fact, 
like that's not even an analogy. It's very much like a pub with no beer, right? Um, but I'm using that analogy of a pub with no beer for a wedding with no wine so that you see how downright offensive the situation is, right? As an Australian, as an Australian a pub with no beer, there, there's, there's few things wronger. Now, there's a, there's a few questions I have at this point, right? A few questions I have. Uh, why is Mary taking responsibility for the problem? Right? Is she, is she helping out with the serving as opposed to being an actual guest? Is that, why, um, is that why it says Jesus' mother was there and says and the, Jesus, and the, Jesus and the disciples were invited because she was just sort of helping out? Or is it that she feels, is it because the groom might be related to her? And so, you know, she feels obligation to help out a relative in this difficult spot. Or maybe it's both. Maybe it's because she's related that maybe that she is helping serve. We really don't know. I mean, it could be that she's so quick to push the responsibility to solve this problem onto Jesus because she feels like he's brought along all these disciples and they're drinking all the wine. Like, like it's, we don't know what it is that means that she's pushing this onto him to solve. But the way that Jesus responds to her tells us heaps about it, right? This is one of those verses you love to hear it in the way the Greek phrases it. It's uh, literally, what to me to you, woman? What to me to you? You know, you can just imagine someone saying an Italian accent, make it sound cooler. I don't know what it would sound like in a Hebrew accent. But, but what you're saying doesn't compete, doesn't compute, sorry, doesn't compute between us. He's drawing like a boundary. Hold, hold, hold on, I think you've got some responsibilities wrong here. Mom, you're overreaching a little. Now, just the, all the commentators reassure me that Jesus is a nice guy. And so, you know, his use of the word woman here wouldn't, is not sort of in the same way, you know, Australian woman, you know, it doesn't have that sort of negative um, patriarchal overtones. It's totally acceptable in their culture, but he does make it clear this isn't a situation where you're giving me instructions when Jesus responds that way to his mum. I'm not your little boy. And you know what's cool? She doesn't. She doesn't go into manipulate mode. This is cool. Mary only gives one instruction here. And in fact, it's the only instruction we ever know that Mary definitely gave, the only one recorded in Scripture, and it's not to Jesus. She instructs, the servants, you notice that? Do whatever he tells you. Do what he tells you. So if you happen to be here and, you know, maybe you've got some real sympathy with the Catholic view of Mary as a saint and, you know, co-redemptress with Jesus and just, just hear this, the woman that you honour so much, to honour her would be to obey her instructions. Here it is. This is the one command we have from her lips, do whatever that guy tells you. Jesus. Mary puts her trust in her son, Jesus. Now, it's a, it's a cracking response. I love, I love so much about the fact that that's what Mary says. I love the fact that Mary could tell from the way that Jesus answers her that he was going to take care of it, even though like the actual words he says are, hey, hold on, no, 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 no. Like, I love that she knows. He doesn't need to say anything more. She can tell. And I love the fact that she respects the pushback from Jesus. He's 30. He's, he's, he's easy there, ma'am. Uh, and she respects that. And I love, but, not, I, but I also don't understand, and I'll tell you why in a second, her confidence that he will sort this out. Like, this is a big problem. There aren't just bottle-o's open. Like, what happened in the Joseph Davidson household that Mary knows that Jesus can, short out, can sort out wine shortages at short notice? Right? Like, what was happening growing up that gives her confidence in this? 
And I kind of say this as a joke, but kind of as a genuine question. Did Jesus, you know, like when, when his you know, baby brother's having a bath, did he calm the waters? You know, did he pull off a mini feeding of the 5,000 when uh, Mary's tired and hasn't got dinner ready? And like, like, did he do miracles before this? How is she so confident? It's really weird. Is it just that he, I mean, most likely Joseph probably isn't around at this point. We don't hear of him after Jesus is 12 years old. She's probably a widow. Maybe Jesus has been taking care of the family for a long time. We, we just don't know. But I want to just walk back. Let's walk back. And I'll walk back to my hour has not yet come. Because he doesn't just say, hey, hold on, you've overstepped the boundary. He said, hey, this isn't quite right because my hour has not yet come. Now, that's a big deal in John. This is a phrase that, that matters. We've talked about John's accuracy in terms of days and time, but this is the most important time marker for John of all. You see, at some point in John's gospel, and I'm not going to tell you where it is. <laughs> Feel free to go through and read the Bible and have a look. With the, a switch flips. See, John repeats the phrase, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Well, Jesus says it. John records it. And at a certain point in time, Jesus then says, and now the hour has come. Have fun. Bible homework. Go search for it. Without using the search function. You've got to read it and find out. Um, and I'll give you a prize. <laughs> I don't know what the prize will be. Um, if you can work out what it is that triggers Jesus. What is it? It's really interesting. What is it that makes him say, now the hour's come? Anyway, for now, it hasn't. The hour has not yet come. But, so whatever happens here, Jesus says, whatever happens here, whatever I do now, you've got to understand, mum, and disciples who are hearing this, this is not the end goal. It's not the final purpose for which I have come. There is much more for me to do. Now, despite this, Jesus decides he is not going to leave the groom hanging. And he turns that frown upside down. My goodness. He gets the, gets the servants, bring the water jars, fill these water jars up, fill them up to the brim, draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet, and they do it. And the master of the banquet, this guy would have been sort of, you know, hired as a, as a steward just to sort of, you know, run the kitchen and stuff. Think of it, this is the caterer, right? And he comes, he says, what? You've had this? You've had this all along and you have not been serving this? We, do you know what we've been drinking? I thought that was okay, but this? You save the Dom Perignon for when everyone's already drunk. This is the best. And you saved it till last. There's not a bunch of teenagers playing Guna Fortune with the cheap cask wine. This is, this is next level. Kind of stuff that I, I used to think that I was like a, a, a bogan and I just didn't like coffee or whiskey until like I had a really, 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 really rich friend and he like, you know, showed me like what some of the really, really good stuff is. I'm like, oh, I'm not a bogan, I'm a snob. I only like the very, very best, most expensive thousand dollar stuff. And this is, this is, I've had that once in my life, right? At his 30th birthday party, but this is that. This is that moment when you realize there are things you hadn't dreamed of in this world. That's what Jesus made. And now my question that I want to put in your head not going to answer it, but I want to put this question in your head. Why, why so much? And why so good? Now, sorry, I did skip over something there. Um, just, I mean, I don't want to make anyone here who, you know, perhaps is a purveyor or a, or a, a manufacturer of alcohol um, who's very good at that um, to feel bad about this. But Brianna, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know if you, where is Bri here tonight? Oh, not here, disappointing. That's oh, probably good. Um, this, is, this is not just a little bit of wine. 
He's created 760 bottles worth of wine. That's kind of the, the middle guess of, of, of when, you, when you sort of add up the, the measurements and stuff. This is literally a truckload of wine. Jesus has gone industrial. It's the good stuff. And there's that much of it. 700, 760, I think it's 63.3 like boxes of wine if you had a box of, boxes of 12. Like this is a truckload. Why so much and why so good? Why so much and why so good? I want you to have that in your head. Now, one point here that you can't avoid, you can't avoid having, dealing with this point from this, from this passage is don't be down on the beautiful and good things in creation because Jesus wasn't. In fact, Jesus became a part of creation. Now, look, I'm not saying getting drunk and losing, losing control is okay. God is really clear that it's not. Proverbs, Deuteronomy, Galatians, Corinthians, take your pick. Old Testament wisdom, Old Testament law, New Testament letters, all through the scriptures. Drunkenness is not okay, says God. But it is a beautiful thing to enjoy a glass of wine to celebrate with friends. It's appropriate to mark goodness that God has given you with something like this. Don't be down on creation. Creation is awesome. Jesus came to the world to become a part of creation. It is the created physical material person that you are that Jesus loves, not sort of your, oh, my, just my spirit, just the spiritual part of me. No, Jesus loves you, and he himself is still physically incarnate with scars in his hands, feet, and side. Now, look, Ecclesiastes reminds us, as also Melody reminded us, there is a time for everything under the sun. There is a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's time for funerals. We've had them this week. There's time to dance. There's time to hug and a time to choose not to give a hug. It's a time to be silenced and a time to speak. And there's a time to have a drink. Now, just a little caveat. If you truly believe that you're disobeying God by doing anything, by drinking, then now is not your season to drink. Okay? Don't ever do something that you think is wrong. Because any, anything that doesn't come from faith is, is sin to you, says, says Ramos. Anything you do where you think you're sinning, well, it's sinning because you think you're doing it, right? You're actually, you're, relationally with God, there's something wrong there. Now, if you're a recovering alcoholic, now's not your season to drink. You'll do that in heaven. If you lose control easily or become swayed by your friends to get drunk, then any moment where that could happen is not your season to drink. If you sit at home struggling with the pain of life and you drink yourself silly to numb the pain, cope with life's stress, well, that's the season to call a brother or sister to be with you in that. I'm around. Um, you can come up to me and have my number. Seriously, you can. I actually meant to have it up on the slide. I forgot. Oh, no. You can seriously have my number. Put it in your phone. Call me. Do you remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper? He said to his disciples, I won't drink wine again until the day I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of my Father. Drink it with you anew, but I won't now, but I will then. Now, some of you are like Jesus in this world because of your past, your history, or things that have been done to you. And so, like Jesus, it won't be until heaven. It won't be until you drink it anew that you'll have your next sip of wine. And if that's you, then any time you hang with me, that'll be me too. I won't drink either. And I will joyfully embrace that season not to drink. 
Okay. So why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus do the miracle? He obviously, at some level, is like, nah, this is not my thing. But he did it anyway. Why did he do it? There's two details that you need to notice in this passage to work out why. First, number one, did you notice what kind of jars they were? Kind of jars? These are jars for Jewish ceremonial washings. They're from the era of the, the Moses covenant. You know, the agreement that God made with this Old Testament people to try and save the world through them. Well, John mentions it explicitly to make sure we don't miss that that's the kind of jar they are. And once they're full, you might say once the ceremonial has been fulfilled, Jesus says, detail number two you need to see, a little word, now. Did you notice that? He says, now. Fill the jars with water, so they fill them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out. When the ceremonial has been fulfilled, now draw and let the master of the feast taste and see. And he discovers wine, new wine, but paradoxically, new wine that is also the best wine. See, when the old is fulfilled, then comes the new. Now, when the Old Testament prophets talked about what God would do on the day when he came to visit them, when the Messiah would appear, these are the kinds of things that they would describe. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from, the hill, from all the hills. I missed that. All the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. And they'll rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams of the prophets. All the things that they said would happen that you're just aching for and waiting for. I am the completion of the covenant between God and Israel. As John foreshadowed in the prologue, John, John said at the start, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. And Jesus is like, yep, that was grace. But man, I got something new for you. I've got something so much better. I got the next level thing. I'm giving you ridiculously lavish, over-the-top truckload of wine in place of jars of water. Grace in place of something that was already good. I will fulfill the law and pour out so much more. That's who I think I am, says Jesus. I'm the fulfillment of all your hopes and dreams. Now, the, the disciples saw this and they believed it. And that's why they wrote down this, this story. That's why this is here. So that you could hear, see a bunch of people saw this guy and his claims and they weren't like, man, this guy thinks he's... God's gift. What a arrogant! They were like they were just they just could do nothing else but real. This is, this is him, and I've got to write it down so that the people generations after me know. This is the first time we see what John was talking about in his prologue. The Word became flesh and lived with us, took up residence with us, and we saw His glory. We were there, so he wrote it down. So you'd know. See, why did Jesus do the miracle? He, he takes this weird situation where he's been dragged into something that's not his responsibility. And yes, he cares for the groom. I mean, that's why he's at the party in the first place. Yes, he doesn't want the party to end in embarrassment. But he takes that moment and turns it into a sign 
a, a sign, something that his disciples could see and wonder about, that the miracle would, would turn their heads, but, but the, the symbol would capture their imagination about who he is. I'm everything that God has ever promised to Israel, says Jesus. Once the old has been filled, the lavish, the free, the joyful, the fun of the new will be unleashed in Jesus. I think it's interesting that a wedding is the first of Jesus' signs. Because a wedding is also the last of Jesus' words in Scripture, nearly. Revelation 21, verse 2, Jesus is planning a wedding. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is the people of God, as you'll see if you read more across that chapter in Revelation. I saw God's new family coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I don't think that, that that's, that's sort of a vision of what it'll be like when Jesus comes again. And I don't think that party is going to run out of wine. I, I, just, I just wonder if we get God wrong. Like solemn, reverent, God, a consuming fire, God, powerful, God, the kind of being that when you're in his presence, you just are like, whoa, I am undone. All of those things, yes. And yet Jesus is the groom in this picture. God is the father and you're the bride. He's been spending money on you. He's been getting you sorted. He's, he's been lavishing gifts and ornaments. And there is a goodness here, a fun, a celebratoriness to God here. When he gets to unite you with himself, when he gets Jesus and you together in the most fullest way, finally the one you put your trust in for so long and you marry him and, and we're going to be together now forever as a happy family and it's just, he's just like, I get to be with you and he's just like, hey, man, how good, how good. See, what do you expect it to be like on the day when you meet God? Is it that? He's bringing the wine because he's already chuffed to, 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 be, to be uniting you with his, with his son. Ah, all right. A, a Presbyterian and a Pentecostal walk into a bar. This actually happened. Not sure if it happened in a bar, but it, it did happen, right? Um, and uh, this, 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 pres, this Pentecostal said, um, look, it's weird at my church. It's sort of like people think you can only be on the, this line, right? Where if you're going really badly, if you imagine God's over here and, you know, being far from God's over here, if you're going really badly, you must be far from God. And if you're going really well, you must be really close to God. And the Presbyterian said to the Pentecostal, oh, that's funny. You know, it's in my church, I wonder if it's sort of the other way around. When you're suffering and doing really badly, oh, gee, you must be soldiering on for the Lord, you know. Keep that sour expression on your face and keep going for Jesus. And if you're going really well, oh, he's got lots of money. So being very, you must be being pretty selfish with it then. You're being really successful. You're out, you're out drinking and having fun. That doesn't seem very godly to me. You see, the truth is, of course, we can exist anywhere on that map, can't we? You can be going really well in life and absolutely loving Jesus and obeying him or being a complete selfish jerk and not loving him at all and only loving yourself. Or you can be going beautifully well and yet you're just under the waves and it's hard. And you can be serving Jesus as much as you got, or you can be drifting to this side in towards bitterness and anger at God, even though you're gritting your teeth. And We can be anywhere on that. See, what's this passage meant to do to us? Ultimately, of course, it's not about wine or gin or whiskey. 
You know, Jesus acknowledges that when he says, my hour has not yet come. It's not about the wine. This is not what I came to do. But it is about the fact that I'm going to replace the, the burden of the law that was on Israel with the blessings of the fulfillment of the law. The wine was just a sign pointing to Jesus' power, that he can do this, that he can turn your relationship with God of feeling disconnected into the lavish grace of a wedding ceremony. See, for, for a Jew, they were meant to be convinced that this Christ was now the one who could give them everything that they'd ever hoped for, everything that their, that their history had ever pointed to. And for the non-Jew, for, for, for the 21st century person who's just sort of, you know, looking on at this, we're meant to be convinced that this Christ, the guy who's written about in this, in this chapter here, is the one who can give you everything that your heart has ever longed for. The union with God and the celebratory love of a father and the welcome to the family. I'm so glad that you've joined us. That, that, that word from him. I think if there's a rebuke here, if there's a, a, a shift for us here, well, it's that we think that God's boring. If you're worried that heaven's going to be boring, you need to go to bed parties. Like, God, we, we need to, to repent of not understanding the God that we serve. How often do you fail to go to Jesus with things when you're down or when you really just need a pick-me-up because you're convinced that there's a better pick-me-up than time with your Lord. This is me repenting right here. When I feel like I need, just need a bit of something and I go to the pantry, I'm sure you can't tell. Uh, when, you, when it's sport, I just need, I just need, a, I need a kick a ball. It's digital, some form of digital media. It's a book, it's wine. Fill in the blank here, what's your go-to? None of these things are bad. They're all good things to be received with thankfulness. But, but, you know, the Old Testament law wasn't bad either. It was good too. But none of them is the Don Perignon creating Messiah, the party-saving king, who to be with him is joy. We've got to stop turning to things that aren't God to have them save us. Instead, turn to Jesus. He's good. He's so good. Lavishly good. I think kind of the point is almost you feel like, could he possibly be the good? It would almost seem inappropriate if he was that much fun. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm meant to blow your mind because I'm everything. I'm the word who created this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we don't get you right. We can't understand who you truly are. We, we are so limited in our ability to perceive your goodness. And yet it's all around us, so much good. I mean, I moved to Hobart and, I, and I, I see so much incredible, this awesome and majestic and yet beautiful and fun creation sitting in front of me every day. Father, in, in bringing your people back to yourself, you celebrate. You have joy and you prepare snacks for when we are together with you. And Lord, right now there will be refining fires and there'll be hard things and there'll be, there'll be difficulties in life. Our Father, we pray that as we go through those things that we would go to Jesus and pray in joy. Expect to find love and, and, and a smile on your face when we go to be with our beloved, 
our groom who we will, we will be married to one day, uh, the God who died on a cross for us because he so desperately wanted to be with us. So, Father, when we, when we think of being with you in prayer now or in face-to-face in the future and we think of something less than what it really is like to be with you, when we think of something less than the, the, the goodness and the, and the joy of being united with a God who loves us, Father, forgive us, we pray. We pray, Lord, that you'd convince us of the joy that we have in our fellowship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.